You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, we hear the word fake news a lot in the news, don't we? I, it's funny. I feel like, you know the, uh, the line from Diego Montoya where he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. That reminds me of the term fake news because I feel like it used to be like made up news stories and now it's anything that you don't like that later on you'll admit to. Right. And then some people are probably using the term intentionally in ways that are deceptive or kind of propaganda or, you know, just have political motivations, right? That they're taking this term and weaponizing it. Yeah. And it's almost, the sad part is it, it, it's it's a punchline at this point, And I just don't find it funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of our politics today is not funny. Uh, but are, are teachers in your school or do you, do you know of social studies teachers who are trying to help kids make sense of fake news, which it's a big, it's kind of a big topic, right? It's not even like we have to figure out what do we even mean by it? Right. So it's, I feel like there's a real fine line that everyone's trying to walk because of the president and because it can just be really difficult when you don't want to be seen as someone who's just like always saying the president's wrong, the president's wrong. I feel like at some point it becomes white noise. And so I feel like there is a fine line in talking about fake news, like literally fake news stories, and dealing with the current political environment. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Actually, my nickname for President Trump is white noise. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I think the thing a lot of educators, because this issue is so complex, I think what a lot of educators probably need is just some help, a guide maybe to navigate media with students, you know, Maybe even unpack fake news. Oh, oh, wait a second. Do we have a guest? <laughs> we do, we do. We have a guest who has helped to bring together many ideas about this topic in an edited book we're going to discuss. And so this is, uh, I don't know what point we're at here, but this is super guest. Is this? I think I he's mean, super friend, yes. We're past friend of the pod at this point, And we would like to welcome back to the podcast, Wayne Jernell. Hey guys, it's great to be here. Good to be back on the pod. It's always a pleasure having you on. And as many of you know, Wayne has been a great partner. He is the editor of Theory and Research in Social Education. And so he's often feeding us a lot of great articles that come through and are published in TRSE and then make their way onto this show. But today we're here to talk about his book he edited. So if you haven't got Wayne's intro, Wayne, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and then Let's talk about the origin story of this book. Sure. I'm an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and my research involves the teaching of politics and political instruction in K-12 education, mostly secondary education. So you guys kind of mentioned President Trump and the 2016 election, and ever since Trump got onto the landscape, this idea of fake news has been almost ubiquitous, right? And, you know, Michael kind of mentioned, mentioned it's like, People say it and they don't even know exactly what they're talking about, right? And it is an issue that teachers need to deal with. So 
what I did, you know, I didn't write this whole book myself. So instead, I got a really a bunch of really smart people together who I knew were doing work on this topic and got them to contribute to this collaborative effort. And it's turned out great. It's uh, published by Teachers College Press. And the official title, which Dan kind of alluded to, is Unpacking Fake News and Educator's Guide to Navigating the Media with Students. And many of our past guests wrote chapters for it. Oh, yeah. Like I said, we've got some of the best minds in civic education in this book. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I, I really hope it's uh, useful for teachers. I am looking at the cover right now because I obviously bought my copy and I'm not trying to humble brag here, but I got my copy before Wayne got his mm-hmm. uh, posted on Twitter, made him a little jealous. <laughs> obviously, that shouldn't happen. They should prioritize the uh, editor of the book. I do like the cover. I'm trying to figure out the metaphor. It's like literally you're inside the box and the box is being opened from the outside. You see the hand. So I, I spent like the first couple of days staring at the cover and just contemplating it, its deep meaning. Well, I, I appreciate that. I wish I could take some credit for the front cover. I'm not good at aesthetic decisions. That was all done by the marketing people at Teachers College Press, but they do a good job. If they made you think about it that long, that, I'm hoping that that means that's a, that's a good thing. So, Wayne, this is a, a book that's going to help educators navigate the media with students, as the subtitle says. So what's in the book? So what we do in this book is we don't necessarily just dump on President Trump for telling falsehoods, right? You know, that that's kind of been well established within the media. In fact, I think just the other day, the Washington Post noted that he had reached over 10,000 false statements since he's been president, right? So it's real easy like as... a marathon of false It is, yeah. It's something to be a, a big accomplishment. But if, as... If you, follow, <laughs> oh, if you follow Daniel Dale on Twitter, Twitter the this journalist who's been following the false statement mm-hmm. stuff, it's exhausting. He goes through every speech and identifies which statements are false. Anyway, so that's if you want to follow that on a daily basis. Yeah. So just focusing on Trump, though, kind of is the easy way out when you're dealing with fake news, right? So now that said, Trump is the reason why people are talking about it. Dan kind of mentioned this earlier about how people are weaponizing this idea of fake news. And Trump has definitely used that to his advantage. He's used the, the term fake news to delegitimize the media, especially particularly media that he thinks is against him. A lot of his followers were, would call the mainstream media. But the reason why that weaponizing works is that there are psychosocial processes at play that make people want to believe fake news. And so one of the reasons one of the ways we talk about this concept in this book is through that psychosocial lens, um, because we make this case that in order for teachers to really be able to combat this issue of fake news, they not only have to focus on how to you know, discern between accurate and inaccurate information, but also get at the motivation, the psychological motivations for why people want to believe stuff that is verifiably false. So what does the book tell us about why people want to believe what's verifiably false? I'm not sure if I'm jumping forward into sure. uh, one of the chapters, but isn't that, I feel like that's like the, the, yeah. the first chapter, although you have a fantastic forward and, and introduction to the book too. Yeah, the, uh, so I'll, I'll mention really quick about the forward. Rebecca Klein, who is a journalist at HuffPost, she agreed to write the forward for the book. So I, th- I really thought it was important to get a journalistic perspective in the book, as well as just the, the social studies education aspect. So, and then my introduction kind of talks about what we've just talked about, you know, this idea that how fake news has kind of evolved in the Trump era even though, as some of the other chapters in the book will allude to, fake news has been around forever, right? 
this whole idea that politicians and other people will say things that aren't true in order to get a vote, right? It was there in the French Revolution. Yeah, French Revolution and even beyond, right? You know, it's there all the time. But this idea of using people's worldviews to weaponize the idea of fake news is something that I think might be newer, or at least Trump has given a, a... you know, a name and a face to it. So that gets to your question, Dan, about the lens that we're using. And Jim Garrett, who I think you've had on the pod before, yeah, he writes a great first chapter that kind of talks about the different types of fake news and why they're effective. So one of the fake news types that he talks about are things like what you would see on the National Enquirer or The Onion, right? These these things are satirical in nature. They're, they're not meant to be consumed as fact, right? And And as a result, few people actually look at them as fact, even though, as you probably know, the difference between fact and fiction these days is uh, the lines getting blurred more and more. It's hard to tell an onion story versus <laughs> actual actual news. But then Jim gets into what the other types of fake news that we're talking about in the book and gets into the psychosocial aspects of things like confirmation bias, motivated, motivated reasoning, and even something that's known as the backfire effect, these things that have been talked about in political science. So... What these psychosocial aspects get at is that it's not enough to really be able to have the tools to figure out accurate versus inaccurate information. You have to want to be able to find accurate news sources. And a lot of people don't make that effort because they have a certain worldview and they don't like information that disrupts that worldview. And so that's why fake news can be effective. It's also the same reason why some people will delegitimize actual legitimate news because it doesn't fit their worldview. And that's what Trump has really tapped into. Part of what makes this so dangerous, I've been diving down a a deep hole of understanding what happened, not just in 2016, but before. And the Internet Research Agency out of Russia, which is, you know, like an arm's length from Putin enough that he can deny his connection with them, you know, have when they, they have tapped into these identity or identity politics, too. And what I mean by that is just the ways that our identities form around our politics. And so they've you know, been going on social media and creating all of these groups that people have been joining for years. And they started this in 2014, and they often focus primarily on the identity aspect of it. And then we just slip in. So there's groups like Blacktivists was, a, was one that got a lot of members where they targeted black activists who were interested in politics. And so once the, your identity was formed around it, then they would slip in political lines. And of course, we cannot vote for Hillary Clinton. And they would put their reasons in on those site. But they spent years developing it. So it's interesting to think about how our identities, how these psychosocial components really play such large factors. Because we can obviously, confirmation bias, we, you know, once we, we see something as being kind of in our interest, we ignore other maybe con- information and quit exploring and trying to learn. So it just feels so dangerous and now we, by the way, can't even come to, we can't even get a lot of people to agree on the facts of how, for example, Russia did interfere in the election. And some people won't even admit that. Yeah. And, you know, confirmation bias and motivated reasoning, they're not new concepts, right? They've been around, you know, that's just part of human nature. But what we have now is a situation where you mentioned social media that's a, an environment where it's ripe for confirmation bias and motivated reasoning because we are, 
more increasingly we silo ourselves with people of like-minded opinion. And so that's why when, you know, a Russian troll submits a meme that, you know, is verifiably false, but if they submit a meme and it, you know, gets into the hands of or gets on the screens of people who believe a certain thing, they're just going to be talking within a community of themselves, right? And so there's no one there to point out, hey, you know what? I don't think that's actually right. And so if no, if, if at no point the, they have the motivation to go look up the accuracy themselves and they're not in heterogeneous groups where people can say, maybe, they, maybe you want to check the accuracy of that, they're just going to automatically assume it's true. That's, um, you know, Ed, Ellen Middall, who writes a chapter in the book, gets into that aspect of this idea of social media and how it plays into this idea of, of confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. So this is clearly a, a major issue, and it's not like something that we can just snap our fingers and fix, and everyone's now going to be a fact checker and actually believe fact checkers. How do you, or, or what advice does your book have for teachers who are trying to get students to have that mindset? The last few chapters of the book, Erica Hodgen and Joe Kahn, and I have a chapter with Chris Clark, who I think has also been on your, your pod, and yeah, Jen Halver. Jen Halver has a final chapter that deals with elementary education specifically. But those last three chapters in particular offer some practical advice for teachers. And in Erica and Joe's chapter, they provide some case studies of teachers that they have observed, and they show examples of the teacher really serving them as a model of you know, modeling their thinking process, going through, helping, you know, students see how to go about evaluating sources and things like that. In my chapter with Chris, we focus specifically on the these political memes that you see floating all over Facebook and Twitter and, and whatnot. And first we talk about the historical evolution of what a meme is and, and how it's gotten to this point, how it can be used within politics. Again, looking at it from a lens, uh, a psychosocial uh, lens. And we talk about how you can't old old uh, ideas of media literacy just don't work anymore with something like a meme because you're not going to be able to find the author. You're not going to be able to verify those type of things. It could have come from anywhere. So instead of trying to approach it that way, we actually uh, encourage teachers to break down the process of what it involves creating memes, how easy they are to create. And, you know, students can figure out that anybody can do this. They can put it out there. There's no verifiable fact check. And then we encourage them to go through some processes of submitting a meme online and seeing how, you know, how viral it gets, how fast it gets spread. Does a negative meme get spread more than a positive meme? And so they can learn by doing and those type of things. And then uh, Jen's chapter really focuses on young learners, which I think often gets overlooked here. If we're not starting with practical lessons for younger uh, students, then the high school is probably too late to get into these conversations for the first time. In order to defeat the meme, we must become the meme. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you, you kind of have to understand the game right if you're if you're on the outskirts and and just trying to react it's not going to work you have to be kind of proactive in these type of things in order to stop russia from getting involved in our elections we must yeah i don't know become russia oh god <laughs> da in it reminds me of the old simpson line in russia 
Yeah, I think I, I really like that approach, Wayne, because I think a lot of times it's a lot of like, hey, you should do all of these things, which oftentimes teachers don't even do. I was, I was hanging out with my nieces last weekend and they were telling me about how their teacher put up a video uh, talking about like their social media practices and like how they should like, you know, limit their time and stuff. And she was sitting by the desk and could see the teacher on Facebook while they were watching this video about the about warning them about social media. And so, yeah, I like the idea of actually teaching them how it works. I saw a great lesson posted online recently about um, having students do their own targeted advertising, for example, um, where they make advertisements for things that they like, and then they target like micro-target groups and then as a way to understand how YouTube and other algorithms micro-target them with ads based on their data that is often you know, extracted from them and their u- online uses. So I love that idea of, of creating memes. Now, there's limits. We don't want to actually go out and do harm and spread fake no. news, <laughs> of course, but I think uh, some of the underlying, you know, mechanics of how this all works seems really important. Mm-hmm. Wayne, tell us, what, what do some of the other chapters explore in the book? Sure, there's a, a very interesting chapter. It's right after uh, Jim's first chapter where Ashley Woodson, LeGarrette King, and Esther Kim explore kind of the history of fake news, but they do it focusing specifically on how fake news has been used to target certain populations in U.S. history more than others. And they focus in on uh, specifically um, African-Americans in in U.S. history. And they do things uh, even going as far back as the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation and how even though the Emancipation Proclamation was announced, it took you know, a long time before the news got down to the slaves who were free and they didn't even know it. And it was, you know, they, they argue that that was an example of early fake news. And then they re- get all the way up to present day when we're talking about, you know, the, the negative news stories that aren't always true about things like Black Lives Matter and how it plays into racial stereotypes and, and things like that. So I think it's important for educators to read that chapter because it's, fake news has been on the horizon, you know, in, in the popular lexicon for the past couple of years. But it does have a history that's, that's much farther back and just as insidious, uh, even before technology. Do, do they talk at all? How do we differentiate between, you know, rhetoric that relies on racist assumptions like dog whistle politics, right? And so you think famously of things like um, George, w, George H.W. Bush's Willie Horton ad. Um, which played on white, oftentimes, fears of black men. And, you know, so without having to actually be racist, you're able to put racist content forward. Do they they differentiate between how, like, propaganda or dog whistle politics is differentiated from fake news? They don't really address that in in their chapter, because I don't think... I don't think you could necessarily call that ad by H.W. Bush and the Willie Horton ad fake news because there was nothing necessarily incorrect about it. Now, it did play on, like I said, the psychosocial elements of people's stereotypes about race and, and things like that. It was definitely an insidious ad. I mean, it was it was a dirty trick, you know, kind of is an ad that way. But as far as fake news, as far as accurate information, and that's something that Chris and I explore in our chapter about memes, even memes that have a kernel of truth play on people's world's worldviews. And, and one of the uh, memes that we target in that chapter is a meme by Donald Trump Jr. during, the, I think, the campaign when they were talking about Syrian refugees. Is this the Skittles one? The, bowls, the bowl of Skittles, right? And, you know, the idea that 
you know, there might be a couple bad Skittles in a bowl. And if you reach your hand in, or, and would you risk eating the poison Skittles? Is the stuff that Donald uh, Trump Jr. saying in that meme inaccurate? Not necessarily, but it's misleading, right? In I also for, wouldn't eat yeah. Skittles from a communal bowl, but that's just me. <laughs> If it's right. not in the bag, I'm not going to touch it. Well, and the the funny part is you'd probably be in more danger eating Skittles from a communal bowl than from Syrian refugees in terms of pop probability as far as getting a cold or something like that. Yeah. Because that's one of the things that we talk about in the chapter is for that to be truly representative, it would have to be a couple Skittles in an Olympic-sized swimming pool full of Skittles rather rather than that small bowl. But to say what he said was factually inaccurate is probably not the case. Now, is it misleading? Sure. And Donald Trump Jr. and people who posted that similar type of meme over and over again, they were playing to their audience's worldviews um, and what they wanted to believe rather than really getting at the the accuracy of, of understanding that metaphor truly. It's also interesting to me, too, how fake news can come from completely different sources, right? Like the when you think of some of the most famous stories, like the the Pope endorses Trump story, which I think was created by a Macedonian kid who was mm-hmm. looking to make money and identified what was getting a lot of clicks, created that story. It got passed around social media, got an inordinate number of views. And that kid didn't care who won the election. They just wanted to make money mm-hmm. with other people who are then creating disinformation, which I often use as a term to intentionally deceive people about facts or events or what's actually happening. So it's it's interesting to think about these different ways that we can get fake news, um, both mm-hmm. with 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 multiple types of intention and what that kind of means for our whole media ecosystem. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is there's so many ways, like you said, of getting fake news. And we know that our students are out there getting the this fake news from all sorts of different sources. And one of the other chapters in the book that, that's really interesting was written by a group of uh, scholars from Michigan State University, Margaret Krakow, Abner Segal, Annalise Halverson, and Rebecca Jacobson, where they talk about how students are bringing in fake news that they learn from home or on social media, and it's affecting the way they can deliberate issues in class. They actually did a study, it's reported in the book, where they were studying classroom deliberations, and they gave students packets of information that had verifiable facts in it on, on both sides of an issue, and this particular issue was immigration that they were discussing. And what they did is they documented the discussion. Students did not rely on the information that was presented to them in class by their teacher that was verifiable information. Instead, they kept bringing up information that either was completely false or misleading, similar to the, the example of the Donald Trump Jr. and the, and the Skittles Bowl, that they had acquired from somewhere outside of class, probably on social media within those echo chambers that we, we talked about earlier. So this is something that educators need to be aware of because it's not something that's just happening outside of school walls. It's penetrating into school walls and it's affecting, you know, the basic foundations of what we do in social studies classes. What suggestions did they have for how to address that? I mean, I know when I lead discussions, I try to get people to return to the documents or I have a bunch of Socratic questions like, where did you learn that? And even ask them about, are we sure about that? And just like posing the questions, but did they have strategies they offered? 
they brought up some some of the similar things that you just mentioned about how a teacher needs to be a little bit more proactive. Now, the problem is, you know, teachers can't be ex- expected to know every single thing that is said in a discussion, right? And a good discussion will probably go beyond just the verifiable facts that you give them in a particular setting. So, again, I think the, the key that they argue is that teachers need to be aware of this uh, phenomenon that, that's occurring um, because the teacher in their study didn't seem to be uh, too aware of where these facts were coming from. So the, before you can really have tangible solutions, the awareness has to be there. I think that's what they were arguing in the chapter. Step one, recognize the fake news. Exactly, yeah. I've always found that uh, also the ground rules for the discussion are really important when you lay out the importance of us, you know, and in being informed citizens, and that's laid out in your kind of ground rules that when we discuss this, we want to be as informed as possible. Then that also kind of doesn't make it threatening when I ask them those follow-up questions, especially if I do it regularly. But it also makes it, allows me a pedagogical way to address completely you know, inaccurate or false information mm-hmm. that that's coming up in the discussion, but it does so without me, a student feeling attacked or anything, which again, we want to, the educational side of this is very difficult because we're, we're potentially asking students to address identity issues, right? They may have like mm-hmm. I, politics, which are part of their identity. And so getting them to challenge that can be hard and you got to have a, a system set up for it. Yeah. So in a previous episode, we had Sarah McGrew on who talked about the work they're doing at the Stanford History Education Group around civic online reasoning. And I noticed that they have a chapter in the book. What did they focus on in this chapter? What they focused on in this chapter was is similar to what they talked about in your previous episode. So a little plug for previous episodes that, that people can go and listen to. And we'll link um, that in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, definitely link to that because, you know, Sarah will be able to do more justice to it than I can do right now. But, you know, what they're doing out in at Stanford is amazing work as far as really showing how students struggle to identify verifiable news. You know, everybody kind of thinks that, you know, this has got fake news is something that people who aren't paying attention to politics that, you know, it's just something that they just click on social media, but they're finding that even undergrads at Stanford, you know, an elite private school are having difficulty assessing whether something is fake, you know, even something, what I would consider basic media literacy with social media and, and being able to understand online accuracy on online material that our middle school, high school, and even college students are just not, they're just bombing at it. And I love, you know, I'll, I'll plug the, the Stanford History Education Group's work, particularly because I think that um, it's a great model for scholars. Not only do they do research, but they actually produce curricular materials teachers mm-hmm. can use in school, and then they continue to research that. And it's something we can all learn from to ensure that we're having, you know, an inf- our research is having an influence in helping teachers who want to do this work. But I love using, for example, their uh, Wikipedia assessment mm-hmm. in class because it's you just think about a lot of people rely on kind of these things that have been repeated, right? These statements they hear, Wikipedia is unreliable. You can't use it as mm-hmm. a source. And then they have no deeper level of thinking mm-hmm. about, well, what makes a good source? And and so in, I think in their assessment, they have you look at George W. Bush's Wikipedia page. And in that, they try to ask you the, the you know, credibility of it. And so you, you once you dig into it, you find that it's a locked page, you know, that not anyone can edit, that it has 400 sources primarily from credible news sources. And so that helps you to get a sense of like, oh, okay, this is more complicated. I need to have a more sophisticated way of looking at a variety of media sources, whether it's social media posts, whether this website is real, or whether it's a Wikipedia page. 
Yeah, and that sophistication of how to assess a source is what I think has the real value in, in, in what they're doing. And, you know, they talk about we've been traditionally trained to read vertically on a source, you know, to look at the from the starting with the title, then going down to the first paragraph and going on and assessing the credibility. But what I think they did was that's really interesting is they have looked at how professional fact checkers go about their work. And Sam Weinberg, little inside trivia here, his brother, Bob, actually works at my university. He's a professor of social work at UNCG. So Sam comes by on occasion and delivers a talk. And, and last semester, Sam came and delivered a talk on this work. And he actually had a video of where they had recorded how the fact checkers were assessing a website compared to professional historians. And it was amazing. The fact checker left the sort the site that he was supposed to be evaluating within 30 seconds of being on the site, had up multiple tabs and doing what the Stanford History Group argues is reading horizontally across different sources rather than, than reading vertically across one source. Yeah, I always remember a moment, you know, I think a lot of us had those conversations that were kind of exhausting on Facebook around 2016 are arguing with people. And I had a friend who you know, I disagreed with on pretty much everything. And and the biggest thing was every time he would give me anything, I'd ask him the source and I couldn't get him, you know, it was very frustrating because I couldn't get him to look at the source as not being, you know, this, you know, this group is not anti-immigration group is not a great source for learning about immigration. I'm not going to watch this 15 minute video that you want me to watch. And so it's really important that we get students an opportunity in classrooms, right, to wrestle with this kind of stuff. Also but, for that, I'll say that another thing Stanford did is they, they paired with a crash course. Mm-hmm. And, and if you haven't seen, there's a Navigating Digital Information uh, crash course series, which I think is about 10 videos that kind of walks you through a lot of the things they've learned in their studies. And we could link those in the show notes. And what I think is interesting about your friend that you just mentioned that, that, that ties into what we talk about in the book, my guess is your friend would look at the sources that you consider legitimate, those mainstream media sources, and would automatically discredit them as being fake news because right. of you know the the worldviews uh, uh, that they believe in and how even if it's what we can see as verifiably legitimate information, they dismiss it because it it goes against what they believe. And and that has been a, a whether you like them or not, Trump. You have to give him some credit for being able to recognize that and tap into it. And he he did that very well during the uh, campaign for president. Yeah, I mean, I'll put well in 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 uh, <laughs> in, per, in parentheses, right? He did yeah. it effectively, effectively for his yeah. aims, yeah. but maybe not well for our our world and democracies. But yeah, a lot of these arguments, it's difficult because oftentimes people are making false equivalencies. Or uh, what John Oliver has referenced as what aboutisms, right? Mm-hmm. Like every time you mention, hey, this is problematic or this is incorrect, people instead of like you know evaluating the sources and their quality, come back with a, a political argument. Well, that's also incorrect, or or this is also true. Um, and so instead of like getting to the truth, we're just kind of spinning in these partisan arguments. Mm-hmm. So where could I find the book Unpacking Fake News: An, Edu- An Educator's Guide to Navigating the Media with Students? Well, you can obviously find it on the Teachers College Press website, but it's also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere else you can buy books. Oh, my goodness. Listen, if you're out there and you grab the book, you shoot us a message and we can chat because this is obviously a huge topic. And I feel that if there are folks who are doing some good work, if there are teachers doing some good work, we'd love to highlight the work you're doing, too. 
yeah, tweet at us and uh, add the hashtag on there, Unpacking Fake News, and we'll retweet an ongoing conversation about some of these things in the book that maybe uh, teachers can continue to take up. And thank you for for putting in the work to put together this book, Wayne. I think um, it's important that as social studies educators and those of us working at the university level, we're responsive to you know these these issues in society. And so I really appreciate you gathering this incredible group of scholars, many of which who we've been fortunate enough to talk to and taking the time to put together a high quality book. And I already have my copy. I've read some of it. I'm going to read the full thing coming up and I'll tweet out some stuff on it so we can continue the conversation. Great. And, and like I said, I hope you enjoy it. And I, I just want to reiterate that I, I was kind of the person to put everything together, but the real stars of the show are, the, are these amazing scholars who wrote the chapters for the book. So it, they're the reason why, why it's worth buying. Again, Wayne, it's always a pleasure to have you on. You always have an open seat at our table. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you want to chat about fake news or some other terms that we can use, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook in that mystery place. And of course, if you haven't already, and really by now, come on, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, in anywhere you want us to be. And you know what's not fake news? A five-star review. If you leave it, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Thank you. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.